So many bits. I'm your host, Bill Nielsen, and joining me from her palatial two-bedroom condo in the middle of Chicago is Di Billick. Di, how are you? I'm great. My condo's great. Do you see these flowers? I Martha Stewarted this whole thing. They are exquisite. Okay, here's the thing. So we are uh, we are at my dining room table, and we're very far away from one another because we're on the ends. But you know that when you this can expand to a 12-person dining table. Get a, get a good dozen in there. I know. Maybe I squeeze a think. baker's dozen in there if I, you need to. I know. I really want to do it. I haven't done it yet. Uh, it's this, uh, It's like 150 years old. It's an antique. It's from uh, my mother-in-law. She's amazing. How old does something have to be before it becomes an antique? 100 years old, I 100 believe. years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I think that's it. Like that's the clinical definition of antique? <laughs> You're calling me out. Hang on. About 100 years. Yes, I was right. You know that antique smell? It doesn't come along with this set, and for that, I am happy. How long does the antique smell take to develop? God, I'm not really sure. I think it has to do with, like, mildew and mold and stuff. Anyway, welcome to my palatial antique apartment. Yeah, yeah, no, it's my pleasure to <laughs> be back. Later on this week, Di, I'm going to be talking with James and Joe Cox. Together, they are seemingly pointless. They're uh, a team out in L.A., and they work on what I guess you could call installation video games, like in the same vein as installation art. Uh, so this year at Bitbash, they had the game Ichi Zone they were demoing, among a couple others they have shown previously at Bitbash. What did you call it? Ichi's Zone. Ichi's Zone. I thought you said Ichi Zone. Oh, like a lychee. Like, you need to see it for yourself sometime. Uh, but first, Dai, you and I have to do some screen watching. Oh, boy. I'm so excited. I was outside watching some dear frolic. You don't even care about the outside, do you? I'm pretty excited, too. I didn't know about this for a while. Like, you know, I try and keep a running list of, like, TV shows or movies that feature game-type scenes. It's a very long list. It is. Uh, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that was on there is the James Bond, and I say that with quotes, film, Quotes. Uh, never Say Never Again. Mm-hmm. So it's always a good sign when you're Googling a film and the one of the questions, you know, that like now Google is trying to like pull you into just being on the Google page and not going to the actual websites. Yes. But one of the questions that they show is like, why does Never Say Never Again exist? Really? It's something like that. Something to that effect. Is it bad? I haven't seen it in its entirety. I only watched the scene. That's true. We, so we only watched one scene of this film, Never Say Never Again. It originally released in the U.S. October 7th, 1983. And, okay, so here's my understanding. Uh, You know, there are the James Bond films, and they're all done by this one production company. Mm -hmm. And they did a movie called Thunderball, you know, back in the 60s. -hmm. Except some of the people who, I guess, originally wrote Thunderball had, like, their own options to make films based on Thunderball. Okay. So someone is like, I'm going to make my own Thunderball film. 
And that was never say never again. That was never say never again. And so it's, it is and it is in a James Bond film. And it features Sean Connery, who at this point had not been James Bond for like a decade. Mm-hmm. And it was cur- at that time like Roger Moore, I think. Oh, my gosh. That's I would never uh, – now I feel like I want to watch it to see how bad it is. Can I tell my Sean Connery joke? Yes, of course you can. What time did uh, Sean Connery get to Wimbledon? Um, 3 a.m. You're wrong. Oh. It was about tennis. <laughs> Wimbledon. <laughs> tennis. Anyway, he uh, – wow, his eyebrows. And that's all I'll say about him. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot you could say about Sean Connery. You know, he's a long – storied film career sometimes he appears in films wearing two bandoliers and underpants uh sometimes he's a horrible human being he slaps uh, women yeah yeah there, there's like uh there's a lot you could talk about with sean connery <laughs> not all of it's good uh but we are going to be talking about him in this scene we don't know as i said we don't know any of the remaining context of this film we only watched this like seven minute scene from the middle of the film yeah and uh i was I was pretty excited. They had the proper Bond uh, women. One had uh, clear hair and like almost no eyebrows whatsoever. I enjoyed the look. Uh, Another had the uh, 70s like uh, red lipstick, very sleek type of uh, netting with the headpiece. Also enjoyed that look. That's about the uh, that's the peak of the uh, scene for me. <laughs> that was hey that, yeah you could see what was going on there. There was some like game of cat and mouse or cat and cat and mouse or something like that going yeah. on. Yeah, cat and cat and mouse. And they do the thing where like the Bond villain challenges James Bond to a thing that's like indirect combat, and they like are sizing each other up before they have their eventual bigger conflict later in the film. And I just don't I can't. Okay, I'll just save that. Anyway, I thought that the game looked pretty cool in real life until, well, you know, we learn about the game later. So it's this big table. What is it called again? The game itself is called Domination. I designed it myself. But my problem is I've never yet found a worthy adversary. Okay, so th- did you get the guy's name? The, the guy who was the blonde slick back hair guy? I'm going to look up his name. So, horrible uh, James Bond version played by uh, Sean Connery, who looked really bored and kind of strung out, let's be totally (laughs) honest. Not the greatest acting chops. I can insult him now because I learned that he's a woman slapper. So anyway, he sits down with this man whose name was... Felix Leiter. Felix Leiter. Yeah. Felix Leiter. And... Yeah, Felix Leiter says he has a game that he wants to play. And this is, like, such a relatable experience. (laughs) I'm sure there are, like, so many people who have their own arcade cabinet in their house. Every time I'm at an enormous cocktail party with a bunch of rich people who are dressed up but celebrating nothing and uh, masquerading a charity as an actual, like, uh, charity instead of a grand money-making scheme, which is what I had gleaned from the scene – of every time they take out this really complex full table video game and that um, that hurts you. Hmm? Eh? Well, I can at least relate on the level like people like they'll have their own like Street Fighter 2 cabinet and they're like they've been playing that thing for 10 <laughs> years now. They can do all the guile moves, all the Ryu moves, all the Chun-Li moves. Yep. And the friend comes over. It's like, hey, we should play some Street Fighter 2. This, so this game comes up and it's a 3D 
world that is uh, always spinning in the center of this long table that's way longer than the table that we are sitting at actually would probably be as long as this table right here taken out to 12 person thanksgiving style beaver home stuff right uh they are they're in front of a screen you know it was reminiscent of electronic battleship (laughs) as far as my brain went and the first thing i thought was this looks like a super fun game so they have the target areas light up on the map there's two joysticks uh, for each player felix lighter and james bond both have a screen and the target areas light up on the map and you have to try to be the first one who hits it with a laser beam and that scores you points and your right hand is a shield and your left hand is uh two nuclear missiles exactly two (laughs) yes exactly two they are playing for actual dollars each country that lights up is its own game and like uh, the the first example that he was like playing was Spain. Do you remember how much that was worth? That was like seventy five hundred dollars or something. Nine thousand dollars. Which to them sounded like a lot of money back in uh, nineteen eighty three. Yes, I was like really on board because it seemed fun and it seemed like something I wanted to play until you have your joysticks. And they shock you electrically. They didn't have enough confidence, I think, in the idea that you could have a battle of wits over a video game. So I felt like they put in a lot of stuff to make it seem more dramatic than it had to be. Absolutely. Um, they, the guy, Felix Leiter, didn't tell him that the game shocked you if you have, if he said, what is it? He, uh, he, you get shocked so you can share the pain of your sh- of your soldiers. That I just Sean Connery'd for a second. Really the pain cool. of your shoulders. That's like such a Hideo Kojima idea for a game, <laughs> like, though. It's like or a Peter Molyneux thing. Like, what if you felt pain? What if you when, felt pain? Yeah. When you when your character feels pain, but like he didn't tell James Bond this, so he's sitting here and uh if you know it it shocks you so you have both joysticks in your hand and it shocks you and if you let go you forfeit the game all right you know uh but felix slider is a good sport so he's like you know let's play again now you know how it works yep and the next random selection is japan and that is worth sixteen thousand dollars it feels like you know to give writing notes to a 30 plus year old film they should have just picked around numbers (laughs) they surely should have i was doing the math in my head at the end because that's the type of person i am but the the thing that happens again is james bond let's go because felix leiter forgot to tell him that as the stakes increase monetarily so does the pain level oh wait oh oh i had the wrong name i'm sorry (laughs) you did i did Oh, sorry. Maximilian Largo is his name. Maximilian Largo. (laughs) So he's not Felix Leiter. I liked that name better. Well, you know, why don't we just call him Felix Leiter for the rest of (laughs) this segment? (laughs) Perfect. That makes me feel better. Yeah. And and like, I just wanted to add in that, you know, they are putting the graphic effects in after the fact with the scene okay so you get lots of scenes of lighter and bond like kind of just wiggling the joysticks around and like trying to look intense but right 
it seems pretty clear they're not like looking at anything yeah i you know what though too i i really didn't appreciate uh sean connery trying to look stoic and have a poker face because it just did the opposite it was seriously so unimpressed by his acting uh, I know that's not what this segment is about, but as an actor, it kind of is. Though. I know you're, it just was allowed. so unbelievable. And the the um, Felix Leiter, not Felix Leiter, uh, his like he was a caricature of an like a very difficult character to play, and he still did a great job. He did. He did. He did a good job with what was given to him. Yeah, he managed to seem vaguely threatening while playing his deadly video game. <laughs> his deadly video game. Uh, so as they're playing and the stakes go up, the the spectators start to look concerned as the stakes raise because the next random target is the USA, and that is worth $42,000. Ring-a-ding-ding. That means that all of your electrical shocks are pretty high. Oh, no. We're raising the tension in the scene. I roll. Uh, it was really ridiculous. In the end, James Bond gets knocked out of his chair physically because the pain level got so high. And so that means he lost, in all, $58,000. I'm honestly surprised Sean Connery was okay with that. I'm surprised he didn't just go like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let a video game hurt James Bond. <laughs> but he didn't. You know, he was fine with it. I wonder how much he got paid for this. Anyway, I digress wildly. Uh, the whole, like, a video game can hurt you and, like, electrically shock you so bad that it's dangerous. All of the poor actors in that scene, especially the clear-eyebrowed woman, is, like, it was so probably hard to feign concern for a scene so stupid and like oh no the video game it will hurt him like oh my god what and, so stupid and like the one lady in the crowd it felt like they kept cutting back to her so she could like nudge a guy to the side so she could <laughs> so it's like excuse me it and then like they cut times. away yeah <laughs> It's like, okay, we get it. She's there. We we can remember this. We know she's there. Also, I mean, if that is her first scene that she's done, which it seemed like it, but probably not because poor directing, like, we get the idea. We've seen the woman who looks like no one else, who's sticking out like a beautiful sore thumb. Come on. It's like Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think. Yeah. Is that the reference? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Felix Leiter of references. We're going to go with it. <laughs> Perfect. So that now they're going to play one more game for all the marbles. Ow. Uh, all the marbles. Uh, so the rest of the world. So, I mean, not Felix Leiter. Uh, assumed that James Bond would just want to stop playing at this point. And he, uh, in the most horrifically acted uh, stoic way, said that, no, I want to, I want to, well, how about for the rest of the world? Which is, uh, is valued at $325,000. What a conveniently round number there, uh, <laughs> you know? And then, uh, I mean, what happens next? You can only guess. They come to a mutual understanding in part ways in the film ends. They shake hands and it says the end, even though it's only 28 minutes in or something. Yeah, exactly. I just guess. Uh, <laughs> really. I, that's the other thing. I could not tell where we were in the film at that point. Like, beginning, middle, end, no one knows. I mean, bad. So, you're wrong. James Bond wins. 
and just the the way they ratchet up the stakes with like some robotic droning voice being like damage yeah. like pain level or damage level it's like pain level 80 percent damage level damage level 85 percent yeah no it was pain level of something so ridiculous and everyone was like to everyone was like looking pretty upset about it too and it's like in real life that would not happen all of your friends even if they love especially if they love you would probably be cheering you on and being like so laughing at you so hard and being so excited that you're playing this game that hurts you and that you might win or lose it's hilarious I mean like I know if you were playing a game that hurt you but I know it wasn't really hurting you because it's a effing game I mean you could play this kind of game at the arcade you know like back in the day when you go to the arcade maybe still today they'd have these like two metal bars you could grab on so you'd make a complete circuit and they'd shock you really yes really nothing about this oh this was a game it wasn't dangerous right unless you had a pacemaker yeah you probably shouldn't play it if you're a pacemaker (laughs) or if you have a pacemaker one of the two if you're a pacemaker you have a stringent set of uh, concerns you should observe at all times yes one of them do not get electrocuted do not get electrocuted and don't go into the hot tub and don't uh you know uh go in a massage chair yeah last one up oh wow i know this is ASMR So Many Bits with Diana Beaver, a.k.a. Ty Billick, my stage name. I need to clean up a little bit. Uh, so, Di, I'm, I'm glad you were willing to uh, to watch this with me. Uh, can, can, are, we, are we glossing over the end? The best part? Oh, yes, of which course. Which is when James Bond wins, not Felix Leiter, takes out his checkbook and says... Well, you've won. I'm going to write you a check for $267,000. And James Bond didn't want $267,000. He instead wanted a dance with a woman named Domino. That was the, the blonde-haired woman in the white dress that was by him. On, that was, and that's Kim Basinger, by the way. I thought it was. I was like, but I thought the movie was older than it was. So I was like, that looks like a gorgeous young Kim Basinger, and she's gorgeous still, but I mean, yeah, thank you. Her cheekbones are amazing. She looked so beautiful in that film. Besides the point, one dance with Domino. Give me a friggin' frig. <laughs> Maybe it was a really fun dance. Maybe it was like an ASMR dance, like she whispered this into his ear while they're close. I hope so. I hope so. Now die. Uh, we're gonna rate this. We're gonna rate this sucker. Yeah, we're gonna rate it. We uh, have three categories to go on, and those are, as always, going to be rated on a scale of six to ten: it's accuracy, condescension, and entertainment. So let's start with accuracy. Die. If you had to rate this from a six to ten, six being completely ridiculously cartoonishly inaccurate, to ten being lifelike accuracy, how would you rate this scene from Never Say Never Again? Uh, a seven because elements of it did remind me of real games. So because of that, I can't give it a six. I just really want to because I was like, this is ridiculous. However, a thought that I had was this is 1983 and the games that they had uh, were pretty limited. So the fact that they were able to conjure up what they think a 3D displayed game would look like, I was pretty impressed with that if I were if it were in 1983 and I were watching this I would there would be some degree of believability 
to it. And also, we could probably make this game work right now. We could probably, you know, drum up some type of prototype. Not like it would be simple or fast. But if someone who had done it, I bet they would be able to do it. And we would be able to play the exact game fairly easily. So, seven. I feel like some stripped-down version of this game could totally have existed in 83. Right. Like on a Vetrex or like in the arcades where it's like... Just some like black and white one bit display, and there's like flashing. Right. But yeah, uh, I would go with a, uh, I'd go with an eight. Like I feel like there's some resemblance to a game of that era, mm-hmm. and the joysticks look like they're gaming joysticks. Right. I'm. I, I don't mean to digress, but I made a note that said I really, really, really want to play this game. This would be a fun game to play with an opponent until I learned that it, it shocks you and that it hurts. But <laughs> like with without that element, I think that it would be really fun. Like one of those killer queen situations where we would really get into the competitiveness of it, and then just like want to just murder each other in a good way. Easy to pick up, difficult to master. Yes. Trying to master it might kill you. Yeah. <laughs> That last element is annoying. Die, one other element that's annoying is condescension. <laughs> uh, so if you had to rate this on a scale of 6 to 10, where 6 is uh, completely not condescending, or 10 is maximally condescending, how would you rate the scene? You know what? I was going to go with 6, but once again, I will go with 7 in the other direction, obviously, because uh, uh, less condescension. Only... One point because the way that they portrayed the attitude of not Felix Leita was like, oh, he's a master of his domain. He knows everything. And I kind of feel like people who are, uh, especially in 83, who were into computers or video games were kind of like viewed in this false way of like being just only involved in that aspect of their lives and then like uh, the rest of their lives kind of like uh, losing value or depreciating value because of that in their own eyes. So it's kind of like, uh, oh, here's this mastermind who's a a savant at this thing. Uh, So yeah, just just a a seven. Just slightly condescending in that way. Okay. Uh, I guess I'd have to go with a six because like everyone at this hoity-toity rich dark evilish party is like ooh we are going to watch the host of the party play this evil video game awesome <laughs> and no one was like wait a minute it's cuz they were all taking mdma though oh they were all under did you see them they're millionaires they're so interested in a video game so you think they're just tripping on all like the colors like they're that's like where they're getting their joy is like all the flashing on the screen half that and half they are playing for real money so the gambling aspect wins over the competitive gaming aspect so it could have been james bond and uh not felix lighter dice (laughs) hacky sack yes everyone would have been so invested push-up contest yes okay all these things are so much more entertaining than that dumb game well, what about the scene two. itself then? Uh, so, how about uh, entertainment? Uh, six completely unentertaining, and ten perfectly entertaining. God, all right, I can't lie. I uh, I enjoyed how dumb I thought it was. Like, I really, really enjoyed how dumb I thought it was to a point of where I'm like, ooh, I want to watch the rest of this movie to see how stupid it is. I was pretty entertained, even if it's like if for the wrong reasons. Eight and a half. Yeah, I, I was charmed by mm-hmm. some of the moments in this film. Uh, it feels a 
bit dated just like in the way that any media from over 30 years ago feels dated i, I would go with like a seven yeah it's like i didn't hate it i liked uh what did i like about it i just like the attitude of not felix lighter uh, <laughs> like such a it's such a nerd thing to do to be like i have this favorite thing that only i understand and i want you to play it with me exactly. here are the complicated rules that I won't disclose to you until you lose. And then it will slowly feed them into the into the consciousness of the room. But somehow he was a good loser. Like, he did lose with grace. He's like, hey, you, you beat me. I'll accept your gracious, like, get out of jail free on the money thing and leave you to it. Another note that we forgot to note is when uh, he was ready to stop the game and the stakes were uh, only 50-some thousand dollars, he wanted James Bond to write a check to his charity. These are my friends. They honored me by coming from all over the world to lose their money for my favorite charity. And what might that be? Children. Often children. There you go. Which was uh, just a front for his probably drug smuggling or something. I don't know. I haven't seen the film, but I am just you know, making the assumption. Probably, but it leaves a good impression all the same. The half point in my eight and a half was the uh, fashion choices that I really, really enjoyed. Because that's who I am as a person. You're a girl. <laughs> and you like clothes. <laughs> wah, wah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Di, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, I'll be talking to the Cox brothers about seemingly pointless. Yeah, Cox. And we are back from break. Joining me on this palatial VoIP line in the middle of the internet are James and Joe Cox. Hi, I'm James Cox. Hey, I'm Joe. Thanks for having us. Listen to Joe being all cool. Yeah, no, right. He's so nonchalant in the way he's uh, saying, thanks for having us. I like how ecstatic you were. You know, what is it, uh, the sweetest sound? Yeah. James and Joe are both the co-founders of Seemingly Pointless, who do a variety of installation games. Uh, most recently, or at least most recently that I saw, they were at BitBash 2020 here in Chicago. I saw their games uh, Ichi Zone. So I know you've done uh, several other projects. I know you did uh, Must Be 18 or Older, and I believe the other game that you did uh, was called Helmetug? Um, Hermitug, yes. Hermitug, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, could you give the, I guess, inspiration, first of all, for Ichi Zone? Um, Ichi Zone, it kind of has three different, uh, I don't know, points of entry, I want to say. Yeah. yeah. The simplest answer is that we originally made it for a jam in Australia called Delete, where you make a game in a day, um, you show it from 7 to midnight, and when midnight hits, you delete all of it. Um, the source code, the executable, all the files is completely gone. So we wanted to make a game there that if you didn't beat it at night, you'd never see the ending. And uh, we made the first version of Ichi Zone there, and it did well enough that we knew that we had to remake it, and we had to expand it. So rather than it deleting itself, the idea would be you want to reapproach it because there's always a deeper level that you can get to faster because of the new information that you've um, gained from playing it again. I guess one of the other points, at least from my end, is that I was kind of frustrated with um, what happened to 18 or older and Steam. So we wanted to make a game that kind of went against everything that we thought um, you're supposed to have in a game. So we made a game that kind of embraced all of this uh, kind of, what, early 2000s Flash? Yeah, yeah, definitely early Flash. Something 
that my my friends and I did a lot in high school was we'd play these like terrible flash advert games, mm-hmm. like Winnie the Pooh's Home Run Derby or you know, sort of what a SpongeBob Boat Across, like the hardest game ever made. <laughs> yeah, right. And that that was exactly it. Is we we'd play those games with pretty much just the intention of like one upping each other's abysmally low scores. So there's definitely like a, a pretty deep history of I, I feel I feel like it was a deep history of flash game mm-hmm. uh, exploration back in my youth. Yeah, and trying to figure out a way to like embrace those games in a format that might be more accessible to players who need a little more oomph to get into them. Uh, and it's, it's really great watching players interact with Ichi Zone with these very frustrating, purposefully dorky mini games, but in a context that puts so much pressure on doing well. Um, and then the third one has to do kind of with uh, the installation aspect. Oh. Yeah, that, that's always something we, I, I feel like we've been enveloping into a lot of the games we create is figuring out how to best display something in a physical space. And that sort of seems like where we, we typically have the most success is when we can take a, you know, a, a digital experience and then find a way to allow people to interact with it physically in, in ways that maybe the game wasn't initially built to to do yeah i could see at least one example of that uh at bitbash there were uh hand handwritten notes or like pieces of paper and pens and pens and pencils left out so people could like give tips to each other as they were playing yeah yeah absolutely actually so something kind of about that we wanted to lean into something that had like the the notes and uh, sort of a really small footprint in terms of what you have to do to set it up because the previous game we were sort of installing was you must be 18 or older to enter which had a bunch of furniture associated with its installation and there's all these trappings that meant you know maneuvering it or transporting it and then setting up always been would always be this process so i i feel like something we managed to pull off with ichi zone is we found a way to include like the same sort of installation aspect but through a, a much more reasonable uh, means mm-hmm. so so rather than having to you know bring in furniture or find places we could uh borrow or uh, i guess rent furniture from we could uh encourage the players to actually build the display themselves which is always so cool seeing how they you know they always find new ways to use the notes or different ways to communicate with future players through it i could see throughout the day even that like i think we may have had the ideal ichi zone experience because early on in the day a child maybe no more than the age of 12 Button through the instructions right away, <laughs> trying to play a game, and it, of course, locked up. <laughs> but like by the end of the day, this was around like 7 or 8 p.m., there was a huge crowd waiting for the timer to come down to zero, and one person very carefully maneuvering through every <laughs> menu and getting to the game and trying to beat the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much perfect. Um, if, we, if we ever see anybody mess up on that first screen, part of the game is learning how to deal with um, the emotional punishment and the weight of your actions in the game. So if we're ever around it, we always try to console that first player and be like, it's okay, like, part of the experience of this game is, you know, learning yourself what not to do, but also being a live demonstration to the other players of the consequences of your actions. And and the game also sort of seems to have a bit of a, like, slow burn, wherein it's, when we have a a good show it seems like typically what'll happen is a few people interact with it early on and then towards zero hour you'll have a crowd that's like frantically trying to get through it Mm -hmm. you you mentioned early on that um you must be 18 or older there was a 
I guess, a negative experience between that and Steam, which is too bad because I, I had the chance to play that as well and, and enjoyed my time with it. Uh, could you describe that a little bit and then how you are looking to maybe adapt Ichi Zone for Steam? Because I saw that there is a Steam listing for Ichi Zone now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I should have explained that earlier. So 18 or older is a previous game we made with Seemingly Pointless. Although we made Hermitug way earlier, I want to say that you must be 18 or older to enter is probably our first official, right? Our first digital. Yeah, our first yeah. digital Seemingly Pointless launch. Um, it was a small freeware game, it lasts about 10 to 15 minutes, and it provided more of kind of a, a freeware proof of concept for a much larger game that we're still um, kind of uh, quietly working on, or, you know, uh, I guess slowly in the background. But it, it was a horror game with the intention of making a horror game that doesn't have violence, monsters, or death, and doesn't really alienate anybody as the other um, for the sake of the, I guess, uh, the scary aspect. And the way we ended up doing that is we made a game about being a kid in the 1990s and looking at porn for the first time. So the fear of the game is you trying to figure out if you even like this stuff because you haven't even hit puberty and hoping that your parents aren't going to catch you. And it's this kind of weird rite of passage that it seems uh, spans way back even before the internet age. Uh, like when we showed this game in various venues, we've even spoken to players who are, you know, like well into their 60s, like baby boomers, who've had similar experiences, but rather than being caught online, it had to do with reading magazines in their bed or hiding something in the woods. You know, just literally these little safekeeping areas where they're trying to keep this stuff hidden because it's considered naughty, even though they don't quite understand, you know, the, the topic yet. So we launched the game on Steam, and it did really well for a month, uh, but then it got banned for being porn. And it's one of these situations where we were pretty confused because nothing about this game is porn. Uh, this, this entire game is about trying to figure out if you even like this stuff. Like, it, it isn't porn itself, it does address like the there's topic. there's no explicit material whatsoever. It, exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, and even if you could consider it explicit in some way, it's like people aren't interacting with, you must be 18 or older to enter the way they would be interacting with a game that is intentionally designed mm -hmm. to be pornographic. There's there's nothing sexy about it. It's, <laughs> it has a horror atmosphere, and um, it's in an art style we call ASCII collage. So you can kind of make out what you're looking at if you're up close to the computer, but it's a little hard to tell. And we did that so when you're playing the game, it kind of puts you in the same role as like you know a kid trying to figure this stuff out. It's like I can kind of make out what's going on, but I don't really get it. So one of the reasons we're working on the next one kind of slowly is that we're testing out a lot of different art styles to make sure that it's, um, I guess, appropriate or won't have to deal with that same kind of filters. For Ichi Zone, I guess what's kind of funny is uh, we, we specifically made sure that Ichi Zone has no profanity and that it's as child-friendly as possible. <laughs> at least on the surface. Yeah, yeah, at least on the surface. <laughs> the, the gameplay mechanics, you know, maybe a little different. But um, even when we display the game publicly, because it's meant to be a uh, corporate child game kind of gone awry, um, the only thing we monitor when we display the game publicly is we make sure that no one's doing any kind of profanity on um, the notes they leave for other players. So in that regard, we don't expect there to be a big problem with Steam. Um, the big thing we're trying to overcome right now and, I guess, grapple with is how to make sure that players know that this is more of a single-session long-form game. And what we kind of landed on was using the terminology digital escape room. So we're hoping that's going to, you know, uh, explain what the experience is like a little better to players. You're hoping to avoid any, like, I'm not sure what uh, what 
text or information gets sent back to you as a developer when a refund happens, but you're hoping to avoid like any refund notes. Like this game stopped me from playing every hour. What the heck? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I definitely, <laughs> uh, a concern in the back of my mind is people review bombing something like Ichizo oh, yeah. because they don't understand the sort of the requirements to play it other than just having a computer that can play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the first thing you get when you open it up is an hour long wait timer. <laughs> so, you know, in the final version, there will be a title screen, and we will allow possibly a little bit adjusting of the time in case you're hosting an event and it's going to go a little longer or a little shorter than the five hours it runs for. But, you know, as soon as you start playing, you will go to this hour-long wait timer. Like, that's not going to change. So that's what we're trying to grapple with. How do you convince, or not convince, but how do you communicate to players what this experience is while it's so different? The nice touch of the uh, the trailer video is just the wait screen. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> if that doesn't get the message across. Uh, so, guys, uh, with the with the game, I mean, there there's this bit involving the the wait time and the meticulousness required to play, but also like the the corporate uh, cynicism behind the Ichi's mascot, Cliffy Cheese, and. Uh, behind like the, the writing in the game itself. Uh, how did you both uh, come together to like brainstorm that? Yeah. So, so yeah, Joe yeah to... uh, we were actually in, when we were doing this game jam for the, that initially created the, the first version of Ichi Zone, we were in Australia for maybe about a week. And we, we were sort of doing this road trip across country. And every time we'd stop at a gas station, I would go in and, you know, buy, we'd buy some sort of like cheese snack because they all were very similar to what you'd see in North America, but it felt sort of like one degree of difference. You know, it'd be like Cheezles instead of Cheetos, or things were just a little bit off. But I, I got really fixated on the, the mascots because of how similar but still dissimilar they were from all the, you know, the snacks you would find in America. And kept all the bags until we did this game jam which is when I realized that was probably the thing we needed to lean into was, you know, taking like a very, very corporate but sloppy mm-hmm. out of touch approach to to a party game. Yeah, it, it was this really interesting experience where we were trying to dig for, I guess, a lot of um, Australian media and the majority of the people we spoke to would just cite things that they watched that were kind of overseas American exports so it was this interesting situation where, you know, Joe was being fascinated by these uh, mascots of these different cheese snacks. And it was this kind of um, overwhelming fear of just uh, this, you know, exported, what, corporate yeah, culture. It definitely felt a bit like the monoculture. Mm-hmm. Like you were finding a lot of regional differences. So we kind of leaned into that in terms of this, you know, this is a company that doesn't really care what you have to say or what your differences are. They're projecting what they think is cool without actually having done their research. My mind immediately goes to the Mountain Dew Super Bowl commercial that has Martin Scorsese and Jonah Hill in it, where it feels just like a total mismatch of talent and uh, their target audience. (laughs) Trying to cover all your bases. Yeah, I feel like there used to be a market for like mid-level or lower level Hollywood actors to like get their big moment during a Holly- a Super Bowl commercial. But now it's all just like mainstream actors going for that pie too. Yeah. And, 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 and to varying degrees of success, <laughs> it always just kind of seems like stuff is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard to put words to it though. Yeah. And then uh, the, the writing behind it is kind of this nice, um, 
meta level where it's like one tier off of the corporation. Like they're not going to be bothered to make their own game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's this kind of a lowest bidder contract thing where they get the most um, incapable people to actually make their game that are having their own communication breakdown. And there's no one in middle management that's actually like QAing it. Yeah, or, like, yeah. Making sure it's uh, representing the brand well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like, you know, these people kind of struggling underneath this, um, what, monoculture uh, global company uh, with their own miscommunications and constant mismanagements trying to create this game that's uh, completely out of their scope. Uh, and it's also a nice way to kind of frame those um, Flash games. Like, it's it's harder to take them seriously when the game is, you know, constantly kind of poking at itself, saying, like, hey, like, why are all these things broken? And then, like, using that as a way for the players to try to figure out what's happening. Uh, if we can... Shift gears slightly. I did also want to touch on on Hermitug as well because uh, that is a completely uh, analog game. As a, if I'm understanding it correctly. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you normally work in that medium, or like was this the first time for you? We've been showing games that come out and play for I'd say on and off for the past five years yeah. now, maybe. Come out and play as a festival in New York City over the summer where they do, it really kind of focuses on physical games, mm -hmm. which was something we were definitely into. But yeah, I, I I don't know if we really if we really focus on it. It's just sort of something we enjoy doing. For um, Hermitech in particular, uh, I made a analog game a while back that required too much equipment. And Joe and I have been really striving to make an analog game that requires no kind of referee. Like just a, a, pure, a pure game where... Everyone that's involved in keeping track of the rules is actually involved in play. Self-moderation. Yeah, 100% self-moderated game. And Joe wanted to do a game where players were, was it T-Rex? It was, I, I thought it was, I, this is really surface level. Yeah. But I, I was really interested in the idea of getting people to do ridiculous things in the name of, you know, a, a game. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> the laundry basket thing just kind of seemed to fall into place because it's immediately ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It has this kind of a spectacle aspect that um, 18 or older or um, Ichi Zone has, where yeah. it's, um, you know, how do you get players to look really weird when they're playing this game in a way that'll draw other people in and ask, like, what are they doing? So, yeah, we, we originally started with this, like, how do you get players to, like, restrict their arm movements? And it was like, oh, well, if they're required to wear a laundry basket, then they can't move their arms, and then you can kind of build a rule set around that. We also kind of thought that, at least I remember thinking at the time, like most people probably have a laundry basket mm -hmm. of some kind. If people ever, for some reason, wanted to play a pickup game of yeah. Hermitug, they would probably be able to do it. <laughs> so a lot of the game came down to making sure that um, most people would have the equipment necessary to play it, and um, the rule set would be simple enough to understand. And we're pretty happy with how um, elegant it came out. And how themed it is. Oh, and how themed it is, yeah. Uh, God, I'm always worried whenever you like show the game live because people are running into each other with these like oh, laundry man. baskets on, and it makes such a noise, and you're just like, "Oh man, I hope no one's getting hurt." Like, shit. it's like that really <laughs> visceral smack you hear yeah. <laughs> when football players line up and then just like charge right into mm -hmm. each other. <laughs> but the good news is that no one's getting their heads bashed. It's just laundry basket <laughs> on laundry basket. I mean, you don't know the long-term effects of LBTE. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. What elements, I mean, of, of this of this installation art and uh, comparing it to uh, like streaming and Let's Plays where there is a performative aspect to those as well. But it seems like you both are stepping in a different direction with trying to have people play the game 
but also make the game itself into a performance too. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, there's definitely sort of a through line there that I, I do see that a lot of her games sort of try to lean into the idea of the players becoming a performer mm-hmm. in some way, you know, in a, in a sort of a physical sense. Because even with 18 or older, the, the screen itself is a, like a one-to-one computer screen and the person playing the game is playing as themselves. So they kind of have to embody, you know, the mindset of, uh, what they would be thinking when they were younger mm-hmm. or, you know, with Ichi zone, it, it kind of falls into a, a similar category where, you know, th- it's another sort of desktop game where people need to really have the attention to get through it. It definitely demands a lot of people, but clearly there, there are groups of players that really do <laughs> identify mm-hmm. with, with something like that. Yeah. We were hoping that, um, Ichi Zone might find a home with um, some streamers too. Uh, we're still kind of working out the aspects of it, but we have had a couple streamers ask us about um, the game in terms of the hour-long wait timer would be a great time to kind of do a QA chat or even ask your viewers on um, tips and tricks for like, hey, what did you guys keep notes of? What should I do next? Like it allows some kind of shared responsibility. Um, we haven't tested that as thoroughly as we'd like, so we still have some room to move on there. Uh, but we're excited to see how that one translates. And then 18 or older is just embarrassing. Like, it has yeah. this performance aspect where it's fun, um, not only in the horror way of, like, oh, my God, I'm jumping, but in the, oh, my God, I can't believe people are watching me get caught. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. I was thinking the same thing where it's, like, you don't know what's in the game exactly, and it has the name must be 18 or older in it. So who knows? Maybe maybe there's going to be a booby popping out somewhere, and you don't want to be having people observe you doing that in a public setting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and similar to Ichi Zone, it's like you don't know what's behind the hour-long wait timer. It's sort of that, mm-hmm. the the mystery. <laughs> or, like, imagine having, like, an audience of, I don't know, even even 50 viewers. Like, I couldn't imagine having over 1,000 people on Twitch, like, watching you mess oh, that man. up live. Yeah. Like, oh, man. <laughs> it's a lot of, like, sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've spent an hour, so... Uh, if, if I think of a lot of people spend an hour consuming some kind of a media, some kind of media they expect a a payoff mm-hmm. that has like a, an equal value to the amount of time they've put into it. Yeah, really make your uh, viewers squirm in their seats. Just generally speaking, do you credit anything in particular to the to the rise and uh, increasing popularity of installation art? Like just at least here in Chicago, Bitbash feels like it's getting bigger and bigger every year, and there's uh, I mean, you, you've been there multiple times now, and there are plenty of others who are entering that space. Yeah, uh, I I don't know if I attribute any single thing, but I, I've kind of, I, I'm definitely someone that appreciates like physical objects and like mm-hmm. the idea of, uh, I don't try to participate in collecting, but it's something I'm really interested in. And, and I think maybe it's just sort of, a, we've had so much digital media through you know sort of recently the last five ten years now that it, it kind of feels like a bit of a rejection where people are interested again in physical experiences in some way even if they have a digital component in that case there's uh one last question i wanted to ask you both and this is uh, a little bit different i feel like among everyone who has a connection to the gaming industry either the makers of the games or the players there's a shared knowledge of Pokemon, whether you played the Game Boy games or you watched the anime or you played Pokemon Go. So uh, with that in mind, for each of you, could you please name 
uh, one Pokemon that you would be, one Pokemon that you would own as a pet, and one Pokemon that you would eat. And for that last one, I'll mention that if you would prefer, uh, you could have a, a byproduct of a Pokemon be consumed instead. Oh. So it's funny you mentioned this, because I've always wondered in the Pokemon world whether they're eating Pokemon or not. Because there's the Pokemon that's a cow that yeah, they, they drink its milk. Mm-hmm. So I don't quite know where that line is drawn in, in universe. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know either, to be honest. Like, what, what other uh, like produce and like livestock exist besides Pokemon? Are there just regular cows you never see? That's, that's kind of the thing is I feel like immediately my... I, I don't know if I'm just hallucinating this, but I remember there being birds <laughs> that weren't Pokemon mm-hmm. in the TV show. But I don't know if that was something that was like retconned or if that was just, you know, I think there's also like, off. There's also like insect sounds, a couple of the episodes, like non-weedle. But, you know, or, when Magic yeah. Carp is a fish, yeah. but literally it looks like a fish you could consume. I don't quite know where the line is drawn okay, so, in the universe. Okay, um, <laughs> so I guess, I guess for my answers... If I was to be a Pokemon, I was always a. I'm, I'm going to stick with the original 150. Uh, you know the classic. Um, it's going to be either. I'm going to say Gengar. That sounds fun. Um, that was a good. That was a good episode. That seems like it's a lot of fun. Kind of like uh, you know jumping around this haunted house, kind of like spooking people. For one, I could own as a pet. I would go with Squirtle, only because that was my original. Um, it's not going to be as bulky as Blastoid. It seems like it's kind of fun. You could use it to wash your car. And uh, the one I would eat is, uh, I feel like it might be really kind of high class, but I, I would say Gyarados. That's cool. Yeah. Like, I think Gyar- Gyarados, like, sashimi would be, that's, like, the thing. Um, okay, so if I, if I had to be a Pokemon, I feel like something like Charizard would be cool. Because he, he has a flame on his tail. But not, but not like Ash's Charizard, who was just a total bubble. No, all the time. no, I mean, just being a Charizard sounds kind of great. Okay. It's like a dragon. Right. It's like a medieval dragon that's been put into, like, modern adjacent Japan. Okay. I think if I could own one as a pet, not original. This isn't the original 150, but I think I would say Mudkip. Oh, but okay. not Mudkip uh... totally evolved as that, like, homunculus thing. Yeah, you just Because like you know, it becomes like a buff man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think if I could eat a Pokemon, I would eat a Pikachu. <laughs> uh, just because that seems like <laughs> the one that would have the most impact. That's a spicy take. Well, that's yeah. it. I think it would be spicy meat, too. <laughs> like, what about a Voltorb? Have you ever had anybody say they'd eat a Voltorb? No, no. I like. I wonder about that, because like, are they just purely metallic? Yeah, right? Guess, like, <laughs> the, the eyes are organic, so... If you cut into a Voltorb, yeah, what is there? Maybe, maybe eating those like really human-looking Pokemon is the way to go. Oh, like a Mr. Mime. Yeah, <laughs> eat a Mr. Mime. Like a fillet of Mr. Mime, medium <laughs> rare. <laughs> I always feel like there's a an opportunity for like a just a, a parody sketch of like diners, drive-ins, and dives for like Kanto edition. Will be really That's funny so is um funny. every once in a while when he's eating something, he realizes it's actually just a ditto. <laughs> you know, it's like this is this isn't this isn't real crabby. This is imitation crabby. It's just ditto. Yeah, I don't need. This <laughs> is how they would feed like the masses. Oh yeah, that's like, like their artificial. It's meat. like soiling green. Yeah. jeez, <laughs> oh, yeah, some like mass production ditto factory. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, could you just imagine that? Yeah, like dittos would totally well, be. I feel um... like they taste like gum or yeah. rubber. Well, I was gonna say it'd be like the breeding animal. It'd be like this oh, factory yeah. thing. Ditto is the backbone of their. 
agricultural economy. They're probably good for endangered species too. Yeah, but you then know? the question is, does that mean the species that comes out is like somehow not like is it half ditto, half the thing? That I mean, it as, was? as far as I'm aware, like in the games, like it wasn't. It was always just whatever the it other was. Just thing a was. pure yeah. Was, yeah, exactly yeah. of the other animal, <laughs> other Pokemon, I should say. Maybe this is like one of the early generations of extensive Pokemon breeding, and then like. 50 to 100 years ago, now you see the damaging effects of a of all the dittos being used. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the ditto gene pool mm-hmm. is I've, I've been, um, I've, been, I've been getting really into uh, guinea pigs recently, and Joe's had to put up with a lot of my guinea pig nonsense. Guinea pigs are fine. Uh, I'm glad he likes them. Um, but one of, the thing, one of my favorite things about guinea pigs is they've been domesticated for, what was it, like 5,000 years? Oh, yeah. Like some insane so, amount of time. Long um, time. Guinea pigs can't even live in the wild anymore. Like they have to be domesticated and taken care of. Or they are domesticated. And it's just crazy because they can't burrow. They can't store things in their cheeks like other rodents. Um, they, they literally only exist because of like livestock reasons. And now they've been turned into pets. And I think they're probably one of the closest things to like Pokemon we have in terms of this yeah. useless animal that only exists because we have bred it to be that way. I imagine a Dodo would have been very close to a Pokemon in some ways. Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> That's a little isolated island. Yeah. Or the Quokas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the larger, stupider-looking guinea pigs. Yeah. It's a good defense mechanism. What, being cute? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now it is, at least. You evolved in the right way. Protect yourself from it's a human. It didn't protect Pikachu. Pikachu's really cute. And you still want to eat Pikachu, though. Yeah, that's true. But I, I feel like I don't. I feel like this is probably taboo. But I would probably try Quokka meat if it was legal. Oh, yeah, I, I, could, legal I could see try. that. Yeah, I do. I do like the idea of you eating Pikachu because it's very um exhibitionist kind of like our games in terms of like uh i'm gonna, I'm gonna make a spectacle out of this yeah yeah <laughs> someone's gonna watch me do this and they'll have an opinion on it though everyone would have an opinion on eating a pikachu i mean i think it's like a rat it's like an electric rat yeah it's a big electric rat <laughs> you have to be careful not when you remove the sack from before you you know cook it otherwise you will get electrical discharge when you are consuming the meat so oh, yeah i feel like that would be part of the experience though is that people would want the like oh the little shock the spiciness yeah that comes yeah. with like an electric shock it'd be, like, <laughs> a static, it'd be like a static electricity while you're eating yeah these little well, it's like a in new frontier of cuisine it's like gamey be... gamey pop rocks yeah i think people That's are looking good. for new experiences and i think electrified meat <laughs> would be one of them very possibly now, that's a really good question. I think we spent more time talking about this than I was ever expecting. Well, guys, thank you so much. That that, that was awesome. I, uh, James and Joe, if there's anywhere people can find you online where they can find info on uh, Seemingly Pointless, the games you're working on, individual projects, where can they find you? Yeah, so our website is seempoint.com, S-E-E-M-P-O-I-N-T.com, and our Twitter is at seempoint. Alternatively, if you'd like to follow Cliffy Cheese of the Ichi Zone, his Twitter is at Cliffy Cheese. Cliffy seems like a real cool dude, so uh, I, I encourage anyone listening to give him a, a follow. Uh, he is the coolest dude. Yeah, he rides a skateboard. Awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And we are back from break. Once again, big thank you to James and Joe Cox. Uh, (coughs) (coughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, Ichi Zone is such an, and uh, sorry, Ichi Zone. Ichi Zone. <laughs> like a Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese Zone. Charles Cheese. They're actually uh, putting it out on Steam. So that's going to be pretty cool. I, I'm curious to see how people interact with that once it's out. Excuse me. But I think with all that, die that brings this episode to a close. Thank you so much again for talking about Never Say Never Again. Of course. Me. Oh, yeah. It was fun. Great times. If you want people to uh, find you anywhere, uh, where can they find you? Uh, com. That's me. And uh, my Instagram is diebillick. And my Twitter, which I'm not on enough, is diebillick. Diverse. <laughs> Branding. Yeah. <laughs> As for us, we can be reached by email at so many bits podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, we're so many bits on there. Follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at so many bits. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Please rate and review or download from Simplecast or stream via Spotify. We play games, twitch.tv slash so many bits, Wednesday and Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Central Time. If you would like to listen to. If you would like to listen to other great nerdy podcasts along with So Many Bits, you can check out nerdlogs.com. We're there, and so are others. And last but not least, thank you very much for listening. Have a great summer. <gasps> so cute. <laughs>